I came across a quote recently labeled, the danger of misliving. The danger of misliving. Here's what it says. There is a danger that you will mislive, that despite all your activity, despite all the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you are on your deathbed, you will look back and realize that you've wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various baubles life has to offer. William Irvine, A Guide to the Good Life, wrote this. A bauble is a a trinket or decoration. There's something that captures our attention. We end up giving our life to lesser things. We end up settling and forfeiting that which is truly valuable for something lesser. Now here's what I know. I don't want to mislive. I know that for many of you, I don't think you want to mislive. I think the reason you're here tonight is because you want to make sure and live into what I love to call your full redemptive potential. That everything that God says is possible for you, that you actually want to step in and you want to attain that, you want to receive that. When Jesus says in, in, in chapter, in, uh, when John says in John 20 verse 31, I've written these things to you so that you may have life. So that you may believe and have life that I think we really are here, we're gathered, we're coming on a Tuesday night because we want to experience life. We want to live into the full redemptive potential that God offers. We don't want to settle for anything lesser. And the danger of this is that many times we don't intentionally mislive It's just we look back and go, oh, dang. And there's regrets and there's pain and there's there's trouble. And we, we look back over our life and go, I forfeited that season of life. <clears throat> This has been a driving force for me in my life. Uh, throughout my life, I feel, I feel like the Lord has just constantly pressed me to go, You want more, you want more, you want more. Now, I felt like I was a kid uh, growing up and was just always bored, always looking for entertainment. And so when I came to Jesus, when I, when I felt like I came to Jesus, I felt like Jesus was inviting me into an adventure, that Jesus was inviting me out of boredom into a life. And, and so I'm taking him up on his offer. Like, you are offering me Zoe life, life to the fullness. I want to experience that. I want to step in. I want to receive that. And so that's been the driving force of my life. So let me give you an example of that. Back in 2013, I shared a little bit about this earlier. I'd been married six years. I had a daughter, Lila Kate, who was four, Jet, my son, who was two, Jackson was on the way. I was serving as high school pastor here. We had a great home. We had family. We had friends. We had ministry. I remember Gary coming into my house, and 
we're having a cookout, and I'm showing him a video of this church plant in New York City, and I'm like, wouldn't it be awesome to be a part of something like that? Like, I want to go do that. And he's like, you're crazy. And I was like, man, I just, I want more. I want everything that Jesus offers. Like, I want to do everything that he's inviting me into and nothing less. And so from the world's perspective, everything on the outside, like we had arrived. Like two-car garage, wife, kids, paycheck, family, friends. It's like all the stuff you're living for. It's like, yeah, we got it. We've arrived. And I'm like, there's, there's something more. There's something more. And so in our desire to not mislive in that season, Amber and I, my wife, we were constantly asking, God, is there, is there anything else for us? Is there anything else you, you want from us? Is there anything that we're missing? Is there something else that needs to be shaped in us? Is there something that God is wanting us to step into? Like, we really believe that God had the, the fullness of life. We really believe that God's plan was better. We really believe Psalm 1611 says, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. We really believe that stuff. And so I'm going, I want to take him up on it. I want to trust him with it. And so in that time of really seeking wisdom from God, we believed God was moving in us to start a church in Salt Lake City. And so we, we packed up our home and we moved into an area where we knew not another single person and moved into a neighborhood and unpacked the boxes and we we're like, here we go, here we go. Now this wasn't easy for us to respond to. Like, pull that quote back up. If we think about this quote, it says, rather than giving our life to something truly valuable, we squander it because you allow yourself to be distracted by the little trinkets that life has to offer. You know what my trinkets, the, the things of, of that time frame was? Again, comfort, paycheck, nice home, friends, stability. It was easy for me to mislive in that season and just go, you know what? I think life is good. And settle. But I felt like God was inviting us in, and so we, we stepped out. And then when I look back on the last 10 years, when I look back on all that God has done in our life, and I'm not, I'm not platforming myself as the poster child for not misliving. I'm platforming myself just to say that when you test God on this, and you live into his wisdom, and you obey his voice, that he has something more for you to not settle. I would have missed out on all that God has done in us the past 10 years. And so once again, last year, last summer, I felt like for six months, there was just an unsettling in our home of just going, God, what's next? I feel like there's something more. I feel like you're inviting us into something more. You know, we're, we're settled in Utah. We have a beautiful home. We have friends. We have relationships. We just moved into a permanent location for our church. We're, we, we just moved into this building. I mean, it seems like everything was, was, was going well. We lived at the base of the mountain of six world-class ski resorts within 15 minutes. All right. Last year, we had 900 inches of snow. 900 inches, not exaggerating. That was like a record year. 900 inches of snow. 
Like you could ski, snowboard, have fun in the mountains. The view, right? Like you look out the window here, what do you see? Forever. That's what you see. There it's like, it's mountains, it's gorgeous, it's beautiful. It's easy for us to get distracted by the comforts of that time, but we believed like the Lord was moving in us. And we don't want to mislive. Because we know the danger of misliving is that on our deathbed, we look back and go, man, we settled for something less. And if I was honest with you tonight, I can't say the last six months of being in Wichita Falls, Texas, uh, that I have the full picture of what God's doing. And quite honestly, I think there's a lot of life that's hard right now. Transition for kids, transition for family, moving in, moving from a role of being lead pastor to having to work with Stephen. No, I'm just kidding. No, it's just there, there's a sense of like being able to cast vision for a church and, and to move into a role where now you're playing this role on a team. And to see the loss of relationships for my kids and having to start over, you tell us all they, they really know. And the only thing that I can keep telling them is, I believe the Lord's led us here and I believe the Lord's called us here and we want to live into our full redemptive potential and we don't want to miss him and we don't want to miss live. So let me ask you this question tonight. I'm going to get to James 3, I promise. Are you in danger of misliving? Have you settled for the trinkets and baubles and decorations and comforts that life has to offer? Have you forfeited living into your full redemptive potential? Or are you receiving that which is truly valuable? Maybe you have some questions about that tonight. And I would tell us that I believe James has a very pertinent word for us tonight that we don't mislive. Now, when I say mislive, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm not saying, hey, at the end of the life, like, I, I hope that we can get that squared away. I hope that for any person in here that's never trusted their life to Jesus Christ and said, I want him to be Lord and Savior, that we, we can lean into that. But I'm talking beyond that because you can survive the Christian life or you can thrive in the Christian life. And I see a lot of Christians that, that come and they go, you know what, I know where I'm going in the end, but he didn't just come for the end, he came for the here and now. He didn't come to give us fullness of life then, he came to give us fullness of life now. And so don't mislive, don't settle. Don't settle, don't wait for the future. He has something for you now. I know my college season was, was one of misliving. When I think about college, it was more of just trying to get to the next phase of life. I was eager, I was anticipating what's next. So I'm like, I'm not really trying to live into the moment. I'm just going, how do I get to the next step? And so... What's at stake, I believe, in James chapter 3? Because I, I, I like to start with, why in the world should you listen? Why should you care about what James chapter 3 says? Because at the very end of James chapter 3, he's going to say that, something there about reaping a harvest of righteousness. And here's what I would tell you tonight, is that what's at stake in misliving 
is not your salvation. What's at stake in misliving is your fullness, your happiness, and your joy. And I believe what he leads us to and invites us into at the very end of James chapter 3 is something that I want us all to experience. So, let's jump into James chapter 3, all right? I know that's a long intro. And here's what I would tell you. If you know anything about James chapter 3, you're like, James chapter 3, if, if, if you have any bit of literacy about the Bible, you're kind of like, hey, I think that's the, the passage of Scripture on the tongue, right? And like every student pastor has, has stood up and said, you know, like, hey, in James chapter 3, uh, it's, the, it's the power of your words, and your words are like toothpaste, right? Because once it comes out, you can't put it back in. You ever heard that? Okay, y'all are like, what in the world? That's a good one. You should use that one, student pastor. So it's toothpaste, right? Like, have you ever tried to put toothpaste back in the tube? It doesn't work, right? And so that's, that's your words. Like, once your words are out there, like, your words have power. The power to destroy, the power to influence. That's why he starts out this whole passage with the idea of, now many of you... I should presume to be teachers because you're going to be judged stricter. Why? Because teachers like myself use a lot of words, right? And the, you, the power of your words, the influence of your words. And so you're going to be judged on a stricter basis. And so we have to, we have to be conscious of that. We, know, we need to know that our words have the power to influence. Our words have the power to encourage. Our words have the power to destroy. But what's interesting that James talks about in that passage is he says it's like the bit you put in a horse's mouth. And you think about a horse and the size of a horse, and yet a bit is so small, but yet it controls the whole horse. Or you think about the rudder of a ship, and it, it talks about the, the mouth, the tongue is like the rudder of a ship. It's so small, but it controls this whole thing. And, and it's saying such a small part of the body has so much power. There's a lot of power. And so... Maybe if we were to read that passage tonight, we would be convinced like, well, man, I need to be more cognizant of, of my, my voice, my power of my words and the influence of my words. Absolutely, I think we should. Hey, I need to clean up my speech. I don't know that my speech actually glorifies the Lord. Absolutely. But you have to realize that we can white knuckle it and try harder and walk out of here and we're gonna do good for about an hour, right? Because we're trying to change the fruit on our tree, not the root. We got to get to the root. We got to get to the source. And so if you ask me, like, why in the world does James go from this idea of, of talking about these outward things like the tongue, and then he's actually going to get into wisdom, and what's the connection there? And the connection is this. There has to be a source that is producing fruit in your life. And so I think Pastor Stephen last week, he talked a lot about the idea of, of uh, works, faith and works and, and how a tree produces fruit. I told my kids, I was sitting with Lila Kate. She's, uh, she's 13 years old. She turns 14 next week. And I, I was just illustrating to her because we have a pecan tree in the backyard. And I said, hey, with this pecan tree, let's say last week I went and I bought some oranges and I came up to the tree and I, I started stapling oranges on the tree. Is that going to work? She's like, no, dad, those aren't going to work. Awesome, you're really brilliant, right? It's not going to work. It's not an orange tree. As much as I want to staple fruit on that tree, it's not an orange tree. In fact, the oranges are going to die. It's not going to produce that fruit, 
right? But a lot of times, us changing our behaviors, us just trying to change the outward works of our life, it doesn't influence us. We actually have to get to the source. And that's what James gets to at the end of James, in the middle of James chapter 3. He says in verse 11, Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my, brother, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And here's what he's saying in this. If you want olives, you got to cultivate an olive tree, right? If you want figs, you got to plant a fig tree. If you want fresh water, you got to dig a cistern and fill it with fresh water. The only hope for obtaining good and godly results is that you start with a good and godly source. And so yesterday in staff meeting, okay, the guys may have not acknowledged this, but yesterday in staff meeting, I asked a question and then somebody kind of made a snarky comment at me or maybe they were kind of short and I made a snarky comment back. And maybe we just dismiss that as like, hey, that's, that's human nature. That's, that's what you do. Well, I'm like, that's not me. Like, why in the world did I, did I respond like that? And so for me, I didn't just go like, hey, I need to clean up my behavior or clean up my act. I actually go, man, what's the source of that? What's going on in my heart that caused me to kind of have a snarky comment to somebody I love and respect in this meeting? Why in the world would I talk to someone like that? And for me, I'm getting curious about the underlining things of my heart because I got to get to the source. Because what I was producing in my life, I'm like, I'm not a fig tree, so why am I throwing figs at people, right? Like, that's not the source of my life. But there's something wrong with the source. And that's what actually in, in Luke's gospel, Luke says this in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And so... Whatever comes out of my mouth is in abundance in my heart. So I'm like, man, there was something not good in my heart. And I, that's what I want to question. That's what I want to do work in, right? And so your words are just giving voice to your heart. So if there's an input of grace into your life, guess what's coming out of it? Grace. If there's an input of forgiveness... If you were with us last Sunday, Pastor Bob talked about the idea of the debtor and the one being forgiven. It's this idea of, man, if there's been an input of forgiveness, guess what's going to come out of your life? Forgiveness. Love in, love out. Patience in, patience out. Wisdom in, wisdom out. Goodness in, goodness out. Peace in, peace out. Hearing in, hearing out. Comfort in. So the question is, is how are we feeding that source? Our hearts need an abundance from the source. And that's the connection that James makes to James chapter 3, moving into verse 13. In verse 8, it says, no human being can tame the tongue. So if we were to read this passage, because in a lot of churches that want to teach works, they'll read James chapter 3 and like, hey, clean up your speech, wash your mouth out with soap, don't say dirty words, and you're good, right? Right? Lord will approve of you. Well, in James chapter 3, verse 8, it says, No human can tame the tongue. So you know what that tells me? Man, we're going to really stink it up at doing this. 
So no human can. So it has to come from outside of me. And this is where the godly wisdom of James chapter 4 verse 13 comes in. And that's the connection here. Because what James is going to say is, you got to change the source. The source has to come from godly wisdom, not worldly wisdom. And so you have to start there. So verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Look at your neighbor. They look wise to you. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being very wise, how do you rate your neighbor? 10. Oh, I see a 2 over here. All right. We got a 2. All right. He's going home alone tonight. No. So who is wise among you? Like we're looking around and we're like, now I, you do a little self-assessment on yourself. Who is wise? When you think about yourself, do you, do you think of yourself as a wise person? And what's interesting, it goes on, by his good conduct, let him show. Now, I, I, I made this joke before, but I think James was from Missouri. He's from the show me state, all right? Because everything he says, good dad joke, right? Everything he says, he's like, you say you have this, show me. You say you have faith, show me by your good works. He says, you say you have wisdom, you say you're wise, show me. Here's what's interesting, though. What was the mark of wisdom in the passage? James chapter 3, verse 13. The, the mark of wisdom is humility. The mark of wisdom is humility. Now, that's opposite what I think most of us think about. Because when we think of wise people, they got a lot of knowledge. They want to flaunt it, right? We, the, the problem is, is most of the people that we need to actually hear from, the people who are truly wise aren't flaunting their wisdom. And so when we think about social media and all the loud voices and all the people that want to speak to us, it's like the people who are truly humble, people who are truly walking in humility are some of the wisest people in the world, but yet we're never going to know from them because they're not flaunting it. And so it's interesting that he starts off that if you have wisdom, let him show his wisdom and may a mark of that wisdom be humility. Would you consider yourself a wise person based on humility? Would you consider your friends to be wise? I think there's an interesting uh, thing that I'm seeing in, in honestly a lot of men and it's what I would call the wound of wisdom. The wound of wisdom basically says this, that there has been a lack of impartation of wisdom into your life growing up. So when we think about it, I look back over my life and like my dad was present. My dad did the best he could, but I can tell you that my dad did not impart wisdom into my life. He didn't teach me how to you know, change a tire on a car, how to, how to make a budget, how to love a woman, how to care for kids. Like these are not, he didn't impart those, those wisdom traits to me. And so when I look back, I mean, there, there is a wisdom wound in my life where I look back and, and, and I can grieve that of going, man, I, I feel like as my dad, as my father, like he should have imparted wisdom to me. 
And maybe you've grown up and, and you're kind of like, you know what, I don't need anybody. And I, I've grown to a place where I'm kind of a self-made woman or man and we carry it around like a badge. We've figured out life for ourselves. Here's a quote by John Eldridge that has said it, it shouldn't be a badge, but one that should cause sadness and regret. He said, we often speak of a man who's done this successfully as a self-made man. This appellation, this saying is usually spoken with a sense of admiration, but really it should be said in the same tones we might use of the dearly departed or a man who recently lost an arm with sadness and regret. What the term really means is he's an orphan man who figured out to master some part of life on his own. That's sad. And if you're anything like me, I, I walked in this church as an 18-year-old, like looking for answers, looking for wisdom, looking for guidance. And I'm thankful that when I walked in these doors that there were men in this church, there were men in our life groups, there were men that gathered me, that pulled me, that began to invest in me, that began to disciple me, that began pointing me to godly wisdom. Guys, you don't have to forfeit it. It's available. I used to stand in front of our church in Utah and I said, hey, if you're here and you long to grow and you long to be discipled, there should not be a person in our church who feels like that's not available to them. So let me know. Let me help. Let me connect you with someone. And I would say that for you, if you're here, I sat with a group of men last week and I'm like, hey, if you could be apprenticed in anything about being a man, about walking with Jesus, what would it be? And I'm, I mean, I heard it from a 34-year-old man. I just wish, I wish somebody would teach me like how to read the Bible. And I'm like, man, we can stand up in a classroom and do that all day long. But I'm like, hey, why don't you come to my house at 630 tomorrow and let's do that together? I'm just going, there are people looking for wisdom. If you want to be an influential person in today's world, to be a sage and a saint. A sage meaning like you listen, you obey God, and you impart that wisdom to others and disciple and invest. And saint, seek to live in righteousness. You'll be the most influential person wherever you are. To be a sage and a saint. Here's why. We live in a world of fools. I didn't say that. The Bible says that in Romans 1, 21, 23. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Despite having more information at our fingertips than we've ever had, we are the most foolish people. Why? Because of pride. Because of what it says, Proverbs 3, 7, be not wise in your own eyes. But we as a culture have sought to be wise in our own eyes. It looks like pride. Here's how I know it. You know why? When I was a kid, we used to take a two by four and take a piece of plywood, stack it up on the, on the street's corner, right? You would take your bike, You'd ride as fast as you can. You'd hit that two by four and the, the ramp and you'd ramp up into the yard. And if it worked, you survived. If it didn't work, guess what happened? 
we, I didn't do it. I, I, I wouldn't go. Like, you know what wisdom tells you? Like, that guy just face-planted, and that didn't work, so I'm not going to follow in his same footsteps. But here's what fools do. Fools go, I bet it's going to go different for me. You know what? I, I, think, I think this is going to go different for me. And if we read the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, it says they did what was right in their own eyes. They did what was right in their own eyes. They did what was right in their own eyes. God says, hey, don't set up that two by four with a piece of plywood and the ramp. Like, you're going to regret it and you're going to face plant. It's not going to go well for you. And it's like, they did what was right in their own eyes. They rejected and they turned away from God. And because of it, disorder and all vile practices entered into their life. And the generation behind them followed them. And the generation behind them followed them. And the generation behind them followed them. In this passage right here, it says, in verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Is that not the world we live in? That's what we experience. That's what we're seeing today. And so we can learn from this, this passage that the mark is humility. It's not pride. That the, the, the beginning of wisdom it starts with a posture of just going, I got more to learn. I'm eager to learn. I'm, I'm eager to grow. The, you know what? The, the beginning step of not misliving is going like, I don't know everything, and there's more out there that I want to experience. There's more out there I want to learn. There's more I want to grow in. And so that's wisdom to be able to just say, I got more to learn. And that's what he says is actually a, the true mark of wisdom is humility, not pride. Okay? It's not pride. Then he describes these two types of wisdom. What are the two types of wisdom? First one, worldly wisdom. Second one, godly wisdom. Verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. This is the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world says this. And here's what I'm going to ask you, so I want you to pay attention. I'm going to ask you in a second, are your decisions marked more by worldly wisdom or godly wisdom? Okay? So worldly wisdom says this. Because it's all about selfish ambition. It's all about getting mine. It's all about jealousy. I want what they have. I want that identity. I want that stuff. I want more. This is the idea. Worldly wisdom is about acquiring stuff. It's about working for your identity. It's about getting what you want. It's about pursuing your heart. It's about not letting people stand in your way. It's about bragging what you have. Others have things you want. They have a status that you want. They're receiving the recognition that you want. You go and get it. And he says, this is not wisdom from above. It's earthly. It's unspiritual. Earthly meaning it doesn't have eternity in mind. It's the natural drift and course of the world. That you won't naturally drift towards wisdom. If you're not pursuing wisdom, you won't naturally drift towards wisdom. You don't wake up and you go, you know what, I'm a wise person. Right? Like you didn't wake up and you know, like, hey man, I'm, I'm speaking Spanish today. 
Like, that didn't happen. Like, it's something you have to be trained to pursue. You got to pursue godly wisdom. How are you going to pursue it? If not, your natural course that you're going to follow is one towards worldly wisdom, which will be one of jealousy, selfish ambition, and pride. That'll be the normal, natural course of your life. You won't drift towards wisdom. But he invites us to receive the wisdom that is from above. This wisdom that is from above, it's pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Pure. It embraces God's purposes for your life. It's pure. God, what do you want for me? What do you have for me? It's peaceable. It's not looking for a fight. It's aiming for unity. It's gentle. It's open to reason. It's saying, hey, let me try to understand you. It's not coming with opinions. It's not coming with a fight. It's full of mercy. And it leads to a harvest of righteousness. Here's what I would say. Worldly wisdom will cause you to mislive. If what marks your decisions is worldly wisdom, selfish ambition, deceit, if worldly wisdom, that that is demonic, the wisdom of the world, if that's what marks your decisions, it will cause you to mislive. And here's what I'm I'm pleading with you. Worldly wisdom will cause you to be distracted with the trinkets, the decorations, the comforts. It will cause you to forfeit that which is of lasting value. Worldly wisdom, you see in the passage, leads to hurt, leads to brokenness, leads to disorder, leads to pain. Godly wisdom leads to peace, leads to life, leads to a harvest of righteousness. A harvest. You reap what you sow. You've heard this. Right now, right now, as a 19-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 21-year-old, as a 27-year-old, as a 40-year-old, look, we are planting seeds in our life right now. We're planting seeds today that in 10 years from now, we're going to harvest. In 20 years from now, we're going to harvest. And you got to think about that. you got to have a vision down the road or you'll mislive. And when you get to that harvest of your life and you look back and you go, man, the seeds I planted back when I was 20, the seeds I planted back when I was 18, the seeds I planted, I wish I could go back and do something different. He says, if we'll lean in and listen to godly wisdom, it will lead to a harvest of righteousness down the road. I'll close with this. I got a good friend in Utah. Um, his name is Robert Marshall. You got that pic of, of him? This is he and I preaching together at our church in Utah. Robert Marshall uh, is a guy that I would say just oozes godly wisdom. First of all, that hairdo is sweet, all right? So I'm going for that when I'm in my 60s. Robert Marshall is a man that I got to meet with weekly and just got to share life with. And at this point in life, we got to come together and we got to teach together on a Sunday morning. Um, 
But I asked him this question. I said, hey, Robert, um, you know, what's, what's the best thing I can do? When I first got to Utah, I said, what's the, what's the best thing, the most wisest thing you would, you would tell me I need to do as a, as a church planner, as a father, as a, as a husband? What, what would you tell me? And he said, the wisest thing you can do is ask God for more wisdom. The wisest thing you can do is ask God for more wisdom. And here's what I would tell you. That was comfort. Because what it told me is that I didn't have to come to the table with all the goods. I didn't have to come to the table with all the resources. When I first landed in Utah and I'm thinking about a church rising up in the city and I'm going, man, how in the world do I do this? How in the world do I start this? I think about all the things of my life. I think about when we first had kids, when I first got, you know, a ministry job, when I first stepped into, a, you know, a relationship with my wife, when I, all these things, I'm going, I don't know what to do. God does. And am I pursuing and leaning into godly wisdom? Am I allowing godly wisdom to rule my life? And so I don't know what it is that you're wrestling through or working through or just navigating. I don't know what the big questions of your life are right now. And I would encourage you to look to your neighbor because they've made a wise decision to show up here tonight. And I think they can probably give you some godly counsel and speak in. I think we should always, too, look to have some people like a Robert Marshall in our life, somebody who's lived long before us and have navigated and experienced a lot of life that can speak in and give wisdom. But I think one of the wisest things we can do is ask God for more wisdom. In James 1.5, it says, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. He doesn't withhold. He doesn't withhold. And so tonight, I just want to invite you into a space. We're going to respond. I'll invite the worship team to come back up. Just to, to sit and let's listen and ask God for wisdom. And what that means is, is really just coming before God and opening our hands and saying, Lord, you know what I'm navigating. You know what I'm working through. You know the resources I have. You know what I'm lacking. How do I do this? What are you calling me into? How do, how do I love this person? How do I be patient? How do I be generous? How do I be caring? Lord, how do I navigate this situation at work? How do I navigate this at school? How do I? He'll give it to us. One of the, my favorite passages of scripture that many of you maybe have memorized, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Don't be prideful and think you got it all figured out. But acknowledge him in all his ways and he'll make your path straight. And we usually stop there. But if we read on in verse 7, it says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. What will it do? If we actually trust in the Lord, lean not on our standing, it will bring healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I mean, like to the inner core of who you are, refreshment. Just to know that what's been imparted to you, maybe you have a wisdom wound and you're like, 
man, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to navigate life. But to know that the Lord, your God, speaks wisdom and gives wisdom and he gives it generously and he wants to give it to you, it's refreshment. So we're just going to respond. I mean, the room's going to be open. I, 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 can, I, can I be honest? Can I be honest with you all tonight? All right, here's, here's my honest thing. We do this uh, prayer response time across the street on Sunday mornings, right? And Pastor Bob gets up and he, and he invites people to come and pray. And here's what I'm thinking. I'm like, man, the whole room should clear out. Quite honest, like, who doesn't need to pray? Who doesn't need to come forward and pray? And, and I get it. Like, I know that the Lord can hear you right there where you are in your seat. But there's something about stepping out of your seat and going, man, I just want to get serious. Like, I'm pleading with God. God, I need to hear from you. I need wisdom. I need godly wisdom. I got a lot of voices in the world trying to tell me what to do. And the natural course of the world is trying to pull me into the worldly wisdom. And I know that that leads to disorder and brokenness, but I don't want to mislive. I want to live into the fullness of life. And so when I go, hey, hey, there's going to be a prayer time and there's going to be an opportunity to come forward and pray and, and offer. I'm like, why, why don't the seats clear out? And I go, either one, we don't believe God cares. Two, we don't believe God hears and listens. Or maybe three, we don't believe that God has the power to actually do anything about it. But I want you to hear me say he does. He does care. He does listen. He does know. He does answer. And he does have the power to speak and impart wisdom to you. To help you navigate your life. And so... Here's what I'm asking you, is in the next few moments as we respond, get alone with the Lord and let him speak to you, guide you, give wisdom to you to help you navigate the paths of life. 